Hello and welcome to the Estate Planners Podcast. My name is Anthony Brinkman and this is the place for will writers, estate planners and solicitors that are interested in learning the tips, tools and technicalities to best help their clients. This is episode 16 entitled Esther Husen versus Allied Dunbar. I had scheduled this topic for a couple of episodes ahead, but I had a conversation with somebody this week where I mentioned this case, and having it on my attention, I brought it forward. It seems relevant to do so, as there is, at the time of recording this episode, a consultation open with the CMA, the Competition and Markets Authority, to do with the unregulated legal sector, and specifically including will writing. And therefore it feels relevant to some of the conclusions of this case. You'll see what I mean at the end of the episode. So let's get into it. The plaintiffs in the case were Mrs. Brenda Esterhusen and Miss Tina Esterhusen. The testator was David Ellis Dibden. Allied Dunbar was the company that drew up Mr. Dibden's will. And Andrew Fitzpatrick was the representative of Allied Dunbar that visited the testator. Mrs. and Miss Esterhusen were disappointed beneficiaries since the will of Mr. Dibden was signed by only one witness and therefore failed. They sued Allied Dunbar for negligence in not getting the will correctly executed. So here's the backstory in this case. David Dibden was a quiet and shy widower that lived in the Southampton area. He did not have any relationship with his neighbours, and he had only one very good friend, a Mr Alex Jeffries. He also had an adopted daughter, Mrs Jane Roberts, but that relationship was quite strained. He didn't attend her wedding, and although she visited him in 1991, she did not see him at all between that visit and his death in 1994. Mr Dibden had made a self-written unattested will in 1974 in which he left his estate to Mrs Roberts. Brenda Esterhusen's father was a GP in the Southampton area. Two of his patients were Alex Jeffries and David Dibden. As Mr Jeffries and Mr Dibden were close friends, Mrs Esterhusen got to know them both initially when her father visited them and she accompanied him from time to time on his patient visits. She met Mr Dibden several times during a period when Mr Jeffries had become ill and they were both visiting him at the same time. When Mr Jeffries died, Mrs Esterhusen saw Mr Dibden at the funeral and he told her that Mr Jeffries had been his only friend and he didn't know now what he was going to do. At the time, Mrs Esterhusen was in her mid-forties and Mr Dibden was 76. She started visiting him more frequently and would invite him over for Sunday lunch with her mother and her daughter. She would visit him at his home on Tuesdays and would clean his house and would stay overnight. In 1984, Mr Dibden made another will, leaving his estate to Brenda Esterhusen and her daughter Tina. That will was not in proper form and although he signed the will, he did not have it witnessed. Sometime in 1992, Mr Dibden asked Mrs Esterhausen 
to get a will form from WH Smith or the post office. He filled it in, nominating Mrs. and Miss Esterhusen as the recipients of his property. He showed this to Mrs. Esterhusen, who was unable to read it because she didn't have her glasses with her at the time. She did, however, see a capital B and a capital T on the document, and concluded that Mr. Dibden intended to leave her and her daughter at least something. In late 1993, Mr. Dibden told Mrs. Esterhusen that he was worried about the validity of his will. She suggested that he should contact a solicitor, but he thought they might be too expensive. She suggested that he should go to Lloyd's Bank for assistance, but he did not do that. Mrs. Esterhusen worked as a secretary, and one of her employments had been for a Mr. Andrew Fitzpatrick, who worked with Allied Dunbar. Mr. Fitzpatrick started to help Mrs. Esterhusen with her pension arrangements, and during one of their meetings, he mentioned that he had been trained to write wills. Mrs. Esterhusen told Mr. Fitzpatrick about her friend, Mr. Dibden, who needed a will, and provided his contact details. She set up that meeting, but made it clear to Mr. Fitzpatrick that she did not want to know the contents of the will, as she believed that Mr. Dibden would be reluctant to pay the fee of £35 for the service, she and her daughter contributed £15 each, meaning that Mr. Dibden would only need to pay the remaining £5. She instructed Mr. Fitzpatrick to withhold that information from Mr. Dibden and simply state that the cost would be £5. Mr. Fitzpatrick agreed to this and carried out the transaction in that fashion. Mr. Fitzpatrick visited Mr. Dibden in early February 1994. He completed a questionnaire that gave instruction to leave his estate to Mrs. and Miss Esterhusen. Those instructions were then submitted to Allied Dunbar's will drafting department that duly drafted the will and was accompanied by instructions for the signing and witnessing. The content or the drafting quality are not in question and they were sound. Andrew Fitzpatrick stated in his evidence that he had requested Mr Dibden to ensure there was a witness present for their second meeting and that he had intended to be the second witness. On arrival at a date sometime in mid-February 1994, no other witness had been arranged. It seems from the evidence that Mr Fitzpatrick took Mr Dibden through the drafted will to confirm that he was happy with the wording, that he knew and approved of the content. At that point, he proceeded to address the matter of finding another witness. Mr Fitzpatrick suggested that he could go to knock on a few neighbours' houses to see if anyone was available to be the second witness. Mr Dibden was not keen on this course of action as he didn't want his neighbours to know his personal business. It seems that Mr Fitzpatrick took a short walk around the neighbourhood to see if he could find anybody by chance, but this did not yield any success. Mr Fitzpatrick then suggested that they drive to the local petrol station to see if they could find anybody there, but Mr Dibden did not like that idea and suggested that Mr Fitzpatrick leave the will with him. Mr Fitzpatrick agreed, but said he would call Mr Dibden in about a week to see if he had managed to get the will witnessed. He followed up as promised, and finding that Mr Dibden had not yet had the will signed, he arranged a third visit. On this third visit, Mr Fitzpatrick reiterated the need to get the will signed and witnessed, but did not manage to get the matter concluded. It's uncertain 
just exactly how the matter was left. According to Mr Fitzpatrick, Mr Dibden had agreed again that the will should be left with him to make his own arrangements. The judge in the case did not agree that it was quite so definitive as he did not think that Mr Dibden was quite so decisive or certain in his character. Nor did Mr Fitzpatrick confirm in writing that this was how matters were left, which would have been common practice. It is, however, the case that Mr Fitzpatrick did contact Mrs Esterhusen to let her know that he had been unable to get Mr Dibden to sign the will, and suggested that Mrs Esterhusen could perhaps assist Mr Dibden in making the appropriate arrangements. Mrs Esterhusen denied that she had agreed to this course of action, but agreed that Mr Fitzpatrick had made the suggestion. Shortly after this, Mr Dibden had cause to call out an electrician to see to a matter at his house. Whilst there, Mr Dibden asked the electrician to witness his will, which he did. The following Tuesday, Mrs Esterhusen came round to see Mr Dibden and stay overnight as usual. At this meeting, Mr Dibden showed her the will, and Mrs Esterhusen expressed surprise at being left the whole estate along with her daughter Tina. She also spotted that the will had only one witness signature, but that there was a space for a second signature. She pointed this out to Mr Dibden, who seemed surprised. Somewhat embarrassed, but grateful to Mr Dibden's gesture, Mrs Esterhusen did not press the matter any further. Later that year, in June, Mr Dibden took ill and was taken to the hospital, where cancer of the bowel was diagnosed. He transferred to a nursing home, and in order to deal with the financial matters, Mrs Esterhusen arranged a solicitor to visit Mr Dibden to put an enduring power of attorney in place. On 12th of July, Mr Dibden told Mrs Esterhusen that he was also worried about his will, and asked for her to bring it to the attention of the solicitor that had done the enduring power of attorney. Mrs Esterhusen found the will at his home and delivered it to the solicitor's letterbox along with a note asking him to visit Mr Dibden. The following day, the solicitor did visit Mr Dibden but found that he was not in a condition to give any testamentary instructions as he was heavily sedated. Mr Dibden died seven days later. Lacking a valid will, Mr Dibden's estate went to his adopted daughter. The court case included testimony from a highly regarded solicitor in the field of wills and probate. That evidence suggested the good practice of prudent solicitors in the arrangement of the execution of wills. Specifically that, quote, a prudent solicitor regards it as his duty to take reasonable steps to assist his client in and about the execution of his will, rather than merely to inform the client how it is to be signed and attested. This means that once the client has approved the draft of a will, a prudent solicitor will either invite the client to his office so that the will can be executed there, or visit him with a member of his staff to execute the will at the client's home. End quote. The two sides of their case submitted their respective positions in relation to who was responsible for what duties and to whom Allied Dunbar owed their duty of care. Time prevents us from discussing those two positions in great detail, save that, in broad terms, the position of the plaintiff was that the company owed a duty of care to them, as well as the client, Mr Dibden, and that there had been insufficient action taken to ensure the successful execution of the will. The position of Allied Dunbar was that their duty of care was not to the plaintiff, but to the client, Mr Dibden. 
and that that duty extended to produce a properly drafted will and to give instructions as to signature and attestation, and that the loss had been caused not by their negligence, but in Mr Dibden's failure to get his will attested. There are several statements in the finding of the court that are relevant to our understanding of the duty of care that we have for our clients and the effectiveness of our service. I've chosen a few of the most relevant statements here. So, firstly, quote, Save in the case of those rash testators who make their own wills, the proper transmission of property from one generation to the next is dependent on the due discharge by solicitors of their duties. Although in any particular case it may not be possible to demonstrate that the intended beneficiary relied upon the solicitor, society as a whole does rely on solicitors to carry out their will-making functions carefully. To my mind, it would be unacceptable if, because of some technical rule of law, the wishes and expectations of testators and beneficiaries generally could be defeated by the negligent actions of solicitors without there being any redress. It is only just that the intended beneficiary should be able to recover the benefits which he would otherwise have received. End quote. This was then followed by confirmation of the fact that although Allied Dunbar are not a firm of solicitors, the duty of care that they have should not be considered any less than that of a qualified solicitor. Quote, Once it is held that the duty exists, it would not be strange to hold that the duty is less than that of a solicitor, whatever that might be unless some clear indication of that is given at the time to the testator or perhaps to the beneficiary. Solicitors have been drafting wills for centuries. Only recently have other professionals come on the scene. From the consumer's point of view, it would be a trap for the unwary if the law imposed a significantly lower duty on non-solicitors. Allied Dunbar's literature endeavours to give the impression that they are as good as a solicitor, and, although there is no suggestion that either Mr Dibden or Mrs Esterhusen saw that literature, Allied Dunbar should not wish to be judged by any lesser standard, end quote. As to the question of whether it was enough that the testator had been left clear written instructions about how to conduct the signing and witnessing, the court held that, quote, Any testator is entitled to expect reasonable assistance without having to ask expressly for it. It is, in my judgment, not enough just to leave written instructions with the testator. In ordinary circumstances, just to leave written instructions and to do no more will not only be contrary to good practice, but also, in my view, negligent. End quote. A number of other points were raised in the summary, but jumping straight to the conclusion of the case, the court held against Allied Dunbar and in favour of the plaintiffs. So what can we conclude from this case? Well, firstly, there can be no mistake that the duty of care that non-solicitors have to their clients is held to be the same as that of a solicitor. Will writers and estate planners are no less responsible for the accuracy and the thoroughness of service than that of anyone else that holds and performs a professional duty in this sector. Also, from a practical viewpoint, the service that is provided by a solicitor or a will writer must include some form of access to help with the attestation process. 
Now, it must be pointed out that this case was from 1998, and whilst the internet had arrived with us at that time, it was not nearly what it is today. There are, I'm sure we are all aware, online will writing services available. And it would be entirely possible for a single person working as a will writer out of their back room to be as prolific in the production of wills for their clients as a whole firm of solicitors. And yet, they would not be able to offer a personal attestation service. Whilst I couldn't comment on how the same case would play out today, given the access to the technologies that exist, which could be implemented to help Mr Dibden, it would surely be a sensible step for all of us to ensure that some arrangements were in place to provide a solution to clients that need help with the attestation. It wouldn't be unreasonable, for example, to have a connection with a company that could provide that service as a standalone activity. And finally, a point to note, which I made in the episode of Barrett versus Bem. The evidence in a case can often come down to the tiniest of details and the access to available contemporaneous evidence. Had Mr Fitzpatrick been able to show the court notes that he'd taken at the time of those visits to Mr Dibden, or written correspondence sent at that time to confirm instructions, the case may have taken a different turn. So take the lessons learned at the cost of somebody else, and you learn from them. Keep good attendance notes. Alright, so that brings us to the end of this episode. I have noticed that the case law type episodes tend to get slightly higher listener statistics than some of the other episodes, so I hope that you've got something out of this one. If you have, please do leave a like or leave some feedback. I do very much appreciate that. And all the best. Until next time, thank you for listening.